All right, I'm going to try something new with you guys. And so I need your participation with this. And so I'm going to throw some images up on this screen. And what I need from you is when they come up, I want you to just call out the first thing that comes to mind, okay? And they're a bit divisive and it could get a bit crazy, but just do it for me. It'll be great. All right, first one. Pineapple on pizza. Yeah, no, yeah, next one. Next one. Manny? <laughs> Spam. Yuck, that's pretty general yuck, yeah. Next one. Vegemite. A lot of Vegemite supporters. Uh, Manny, next one. Promite. My wife, Bella, likes Promite. I find it pretty gross. Next one. Oh, we've got some people. Martin Luther King Jr. Good. Yes. Yeah, next guy. Nick Curios. What did you say? Yeah? All right. <laughs> next one. Elon Musk. Eh. Eh. All right, for this next one, I don't want you to yell out. I just want you to keep it in your head, all right? Manny? God. What comes to mind when you think of God? Uh, Christian writer A.W. Tozer, he said this, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That's a, a pretty big statement, hey, that what we think about God is something definitive about it. There's, there's something that's greatly important about us. Our world has a bit of a problem when we talk about God. We say things like, I think God is like this. Or, surely God could not be like this. And so, have you, has anyone found themselves in conversations like this? Yeah? I think there's heaps of people that believe in a higher power, even in our post-Christian world, that they believe in a God. But the way that we define God is so different. Your God could be different to my God, and there's nothing wrong with that. The problem with our world as it considers God is that God has become whatever we want him to be. We think we actually have the right to define God, that it's a concept that's open to interpretation. But here's the, here's the problem with thinking like this. We end up crafting a God of our own liking, someone we're comfortable with, someone that doesn't rock our reality too much, and usually a God that's comfortable with us, comfortable with how we're living. And so our big problem is that we want to define a God of our own liking instead of letting him tell us who he is to define himself. And so here's the big challenge for us as we consider God. What would it be like if God just told you who he was? Could you position yourself humbly to allow God to declare himself to you? And do you think you could accept what he has to say about himself? Because here in chapter 3 of Exodus, we're introduced to God. God declares who he is, and he's a God that defines himself. And so the question for us is, are we able to hear it? Are we able to take it, whether we like what we hear or we don't? And so what would it take for us to humble ourselves and to position our hearts to allow God to show us who he is. So if you've got your Bible there, I just want to 
get you to take notice of verse 5 here. It's the posture of Moses as he approaches the burning bush. It says, verse 5, Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place you are standing is holy ground. Can you see the posture that God requires of us when we come to him? Moses, God tells Moses, take off your sandals. That, that, to take off your sandals is an act of respect. It's to show reverence to, to a holy God. And so as God defines himself to us, what would it take for us to show this same posture? What would it take for us to take off our shoes, to humbly allow him to define and declare himself to us? And so let's just take a moment, take a breath. Let's, let's position our hearts to be ready to encounter a holy God. All right, let's dig in. And so Lisa was talking about it last week, but we were introduced to the people of God, Israel. They're living in Egypt, in slavery. And so the, the, the king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he's watching the Israelite people grow and grow and grow, and they've become a threat to him. And so He's thinking if there was ever a rebellion, that they would be able to take over the Egyptians and wipe them out. So he hatches this plan to eradicate the, the nation of Israel. He plans to kill all the baby boys. And we're introduced to Moses, who's one of these boys who escapes this plan. His mum's put him in a basket, and he he's ends up getting found by Pharaoh's own daughter and raised in Pharaoh's own household. It's pretty amazing. And if you've been reading during the week, this account's been continuing. Um, we've got Moses as an older man. He goes out to see the Israelite people, and he, and he comes across a slave master beating one of the Hebrews. And he intervenes, and he actually kills this man. And, and out of fear of what he's done would become known, he flees into the land of Midian. And it's in Midian that he finds himself a wife, he creates a family, he joins a community, ends up working for his father-in-law as a shepherd. And this takes us right up to verse 1 of chapter 3. And so if you've got your Bibles, just have a read there. Verse 1, Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock, the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that though the bush was on fire, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see this strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. And so Moses' day has probably begun like any other. He's out tending to his sheep and he sees this bush burning. It's like burning constantly and never going out. Its leaves were probably still green. The, the wood wasn't charring. And so as you would, he heads over, Let's have a better look. And what he finds is not a natural phenomenon. He steps into an encounter with God. And it's from the presence of this bush that God starts to declare who he is. And so we're going to see him do it in three main ways. The first one is he visually displays what he's like. The second one, he shows us what he's like through his actions. And then the third one, he tells us his name the name to which his reputation will carry. And it's a similar way you get to know anyone, right? You find out their name, you see how they present themselves, and they show you who they are. 
through their actions. So this is what God is doing for us here at the burning bush. And so even before God tells Moses what he's like, he shows Moses what he's like. And so do you know how there's some people, you can just tell a lot about them just by looking at them? There's some people and they're like, they've just got a really kind, trustworthy face. And you're like, oh, yeah, they seem like a nice person. There's other people where you're like, oh, I just, I don't know, like I wouldn't want to get stuck in an alley late at night with that guy. Like, you don't want to judge people that way, but we do communicate a lot about ourselves by how we look. And it's God's doing that now for us through the image of the burning bush. He's trying to tell us something about himself. And so think about burning things with me for a bit. Um, We've recently put in a fireplace in our house. It's been really good timing with all this cold weather. And I can honestly say that my life has significantly changed because of it. Like, I've become obsessed with wood. Like, finding wood, storing wood, chopping wood. I just, my mind just can't stop thinking about wood. There's a part of my brain that's been activated that I'm permanently on the hunt for wood. I'll be driving down the road and I'll see piles of wood on the side of the road and I, like, I'll always think, how can I get that home? What will it burn like? How will I store it? I'll be driving down and I'll be looking into other people's front yard and I'll see their wood stack and I'll be like, man, that is a good stack. I wonder where they got that wood from. The satisfaction that I get from sitting in front of a well-burning fire that I've scavenged the wood from, it, quite, it can't quite be put into words. It's, a, it's an immense satisfaction. But the funny thing is, I live in a well-insulated home in a part of the world that doesn't really get that cold at all. Hey, But think about Moses. He lived in a desert, hot in the day, but it would have been freezing at night. So for him, fire, the warmth... <laughs> the light, the energy it provided to cook food, it would, have, it would have been a life source for him. It would have been an everyday task for him to gather wood. It would have been something that he and his community were dependent on to survive. And so no wonder he's curious here. Imagine having an eternal flame that you could just keep having for yourself. That's a dream. I'd love that. But what God is doing here at the burning bush is he's actually showing us something about himself, something unique about him, he's actually showing us how different he is to us. Like the burning bush, God never burns out. He's not dependent on any other energy resource outside himself. He can exist forever because he needs nothing to give him life. He himself is the source of all life. We, we, we say that he's completely self-sufficient. He doesn't depend on food, warmth, or anything else to survive. He doesn't need it. And because of this, he's not like us. He's completely self-sufficient, independent. And so a self-sufficient God, it actually creates a bit of a problem in how we relate to him. We often make this mistake of thinking that God needs something from us, that he's not complete or fulfilled unless we appease him in some way. But if God is fully self-sustaining, and I would say content in who he is, then he doesn't need anything from us. He doesn't need our love. 
He doesn't need our praise. He doesn't need us to worship him. He doesn't need us to glorify him. We're dependent on him, not him on us. He's the one that does things for us. It's by his grace that we have life, by his grace that we continue to survive. We're not in a co-dependent relationship with God. All that we are and what we have is by the goodness of his generous grace. The amazing thing is that he does use us. And he's going to use Moses here, but he doesn't need to. It's quite humbling, isn't it? And so one of the problems for us is that we often want to make more of ourselves and to put a higher significance on our own importance as it relates to God. And so often we let our relationship get defined by what we can do for God instead of what he does for us. And so we need to not forget who the self-sufficient one is here. God's about to show us through the Exodus that he's, he's going to use us to bring about his pur- purposes, but he's not dependent on us. And so is your relationship with God defined by what you can do for him instead of what he does for you? Because one's going to lead to frustration and the other's going to lead to gratitude and thankfulness. But look here, God starts to speak from the bush and he starts to articulate what he's like. And so verse 4, When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, Here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. And so God calls Moses from in the bush, and Moses says, here I am. But God's first command to him is, stop. Don't come any closer. Stand back. He tells Moses, take off your sandals, because where you are standing is holy ground. And so this is the first time that the Bible uses the word holy to talk about God. And so holiness means separation. If something is holy, it is set apart. And so God is saying the space in which he's present must remain holy. It's to be set apart. God is demonstrating the distance between the divine himself and and Moses, who's humanity. And so God is slowly defining himself to us here at the burning bush. And what he's showing us is he's very different from us. He's separate from us. And one, one of them, um, and, and when we try to define God, we often make the mistake of making him more like us. We make him more relatable. We make him more understandable. We actually make him more human. But our attempts to do this to a God that is other to us, that is separate, they only distort his image. And so that's a classic mistake that you, you find all throughout the Bible of people making idols of God. They're, they're attempting to confine his, uh, his nature to a mere statue. And so to reduce God to anything less than what he is is offensive. But God sets himself apart from us at the burning bush. He is a holy divine being. And one of the main things that separates God and us is his righteous perfection and our sinfulness. And so that's why we often think of holiness as righteousness, 
because God in his holiness is righteous and we're not. And so you see this through Moses' reaction to God at the burning bush. He hid his face. He was, he was afraid to look at God. Moses became acutely aware of how sinful he was when he saw God in his holy, righteous perfection. And he fears righteous judgment for his sin. And so Moses, he, he represents all of us as we stand before God. If you look around at other people, it can be easy to convince yourself that you're not really that bad of a person. Like you look around and you're like, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm probably like a little bit better than average. <laughs> but, I, but looking at other sinners isn't going to help us define what good is. It's only when Moses looks to God and sees him in his perfect goodness that he, he can see how far he's fallen short. He sees perfection. He realizes how imperfect he is. And the same is true of us. It's only when we see God's goodness clearly that we realize how far we've fallen short. And so God is showing us here that he's different from us. He alone is perfectly good. And so have a look there at verse 7. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of, the land, out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey, the home of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. And so do you know how people say actions speak louder than words? It's through God's actions and his impending actions that we're going to see more of what he's like here. And so notice the three verbs in that verse that describe what God is doing. The first one, he's seen the misery of his people. He's heard them crying out and he's concerned about their suffering. He's, he, God sees, he hears, and he cares. God is not limited to one place at one time. He can see and hear all the cries of the people. He knows it all. And, and it's what, a, what he does about it that reveals the nature of who he really is, his character, that he's a God of compassion. And so sometimes we often wonder, does God really care? Does he see what we're going through? Does he know our pain? If he is God, why couldn't he take that away? The God that reveals himself here at the burning bush is a dramatic example of a God that knows exactly what you're going through. And so, I don't know, you might have been in a position where you're grieving pers uh, personally, whether past or present. Um, one thing that can be really unhelpful is when someone comes to you and they try and relate to your pain in that moment. They try to say that they know what you're going through. It can be really unhelpful. They often mean well, but it has the opposite effect. They say one of the best things to do for someone grieving is actually to say, I can't imagine the pain that you're experiencing. That it's best if we acknowledge our limita limitations in that we can't fully relate and see and know someone else's pain. But this isn't true for God. God could never say, I can't imagine the pain you're experiencing. He's the only one that sees everything. 
And he shows us here that he, he not only sees it, but he genuinely cares about it. He's a God of compassion. And it's out of his care that he's, he's going to do something about it. And so it's out of this character that God goes on to establish the reputation of how he wants to be known by the world through the works of the Exodus. And so notice that land that was mentioned there. It's the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites. That land is what God promised Abraham and his descendants, which is the nation of Israel. And he's announcing that after hundreds of years, he's going to faithfully fulfill this promise. And it's through the events of the Exodus, the rescuing of a nation, that God demonstrates who he is to all of us, to humanity, and he's showing us this. He is a God that has come to save. He is a God of salvation. He's the rescuer, the redeemer. He's the one that saves from beginning to end. The Exodus, all we're going to read, is one big demonstration of his saving nature. And to accompany this reputation that he's establishing for himself, he gives us his name. And so look there at verse 10. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And so Moses asked God two really good questions. Who am I and who are you? The who am I question, we actually see that fleshed out in the rest of the passage. We're going to hit it next week, and so I'm not going to get into it. But what's clear is Moses is focusing on his own inadequacy instead of God's sufficiency. But we'll get there. The question I want to focus on is, who are you? What is your name? And so, so far, God has only introduced himself to Moses as the God of his ancestors. And so Moses here asks for God's personal name. Moses is predicting that when he's going to come back to the, Israel, the leaders of Israel, who don't actually even know him, they're going to be sceptical about his story. And so if you want to tell someone about someone else, one of the first steps is to know their name. And so think about the significance of a name with me for a moment. Uh, most of us, we're given certain names by our parents that have certain meanings that they want us to live up to. And so our parents, they normally like have a list of names, things they like. They whip out one of those baby name meaning books and they start going through and they're like finding things they like. And they find things like warrior of God or like defender of people. And like, yeah, I'm going to name my kid that. And of course, we want to give our, our kids names with cool meanings. But who here feels like they've lived up to the meaning of their name? I don't know. My parents named, named me, uh, they said my name meant strong tower. And I'm like, that's a lot to live up to, guys. Like, talk about expectations. <laughs> um, what ends up happening is we end up defining our own name. We create our own reputation. And so it's my, why my mum would always say to me on the first day of school, Darcy, like, be good, you don't want to get a bad reputation on your first day. But that didn't always work either. And so our names carry the reputation of who we are. And sometimes we just give people nicknames because it's better suited to them. You see Jesus do this? 
He just meets his disciples. He gives them a new name based on what he wants them to be. Bit of a power move. Um, I had <laughs> I had a maid whose nickname growing up was Hobbit. It'd get shortened to Hobbsy. And it wasn't because he had big feet. It was because he was really short. And he embraced it. He loved it. It was great. And, you know, I knew this other guy whose nickname was Pineapple. And I'm like, what? That's such a weird nickname. And, and I asked him, why, why do they call you Pineapple? And he said, oh, someone just called me it one day. And I asked him, do you even like pineapples? He's like, no, nah, not really. It's like, what's the point? But what would it be like to have a name that defines, in essence, who you really are? Because that's the case with God here. Look at, look at verse 14. God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you're to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your, your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And so what is God doing, what is he trying to tell us by telling us his name here? It's a bit confusing, isn't it? I am who I am. It's like a circular, never-ending circular statement. And so do you notice there that God actually says three different names to Moses? He says one, he says, I am who I am, and then he shortens it and says, I am has sent you. And then in verse 15, he just says, the Lord, in all capitals. And so in the Hebrew language, the Lord there, it's actually four letters. It's Y-H-W-H, and, and we think it's pronounced Yahweh. That's the personal name of God. And so anytime you see in your Bible, the Lord in all capital, capitals, it's referring to the personal covenantal name of God, Yahweh. Um, other Bibles will say Jehovah. And so what connects all these variations of the name is that they all derive from the same Hebrew verb, which is to be. And so the language is flexible enough where it could be, I am who I am, or I will be who I will be. That his, his name means he who is, or you could say it like, I am the one who is. And his name here is actually directly tied to the image of the burning bush. By saying, I am who I am, he's saying that he continuously exists, that he's always existed. And so notice how his name, it occurs in the present tense. It's not, I, I was who I was, or I will be who I will be. It's, I am who I am. Always present, forever existing, unchangeable, infinite, never burning out. He is who he is. And so as limited beings, we face the reality of having to say, I am what I am, meaning that there's things about us that we have no control over, that we're a product of whatever source of life that's been given to us. But it's only God that can say, I am that I am. He does not owe his being to anyone else. He simply exists all by himself. And so God's name presents a challenge for us. A God who has always existed is hard for us to comprehend. And so I don't know if you've had a discussion with kids about this, but they love to ask these questions. They usually go, who created the world? And you're like, God created the world. Pat on the back, good Christian parent, got that answer right. And then they'll always ask, who created God? And you're like, 
We, we, we feel a bit uncomfortable about telling our kids something that we don't fully comprehend. But the answer that God gives here through his name is no one. No one created God. He's always been there. And so kids, I think they react externally um, the same that we react internally. So they just throw up their arms like, what? I can't believe that. That's crazy. And they they just can't wrap their heads around it. And it's a bit the same with us. And so what do we do when God tells us something about himself that, that we can't comprehend fully. I think one thing is we, we, we want to reject it. We want to tear it down. We want to redefine it until it makes sense to us. There's something in us that drives us to make sense of everything and we keep working until we figure all of it out. And so the humbling reality for us when we deal with the complexities of God is that he is an infinite being and we are finite. God makes himself known to us. He's telling us his name here. But as finite beings, there's so much that we can't comprehend about an infinite God. And so God, uh, God, it's like God says, although you may know some things about me, you will never fully and exhaustively know everything about me. God is purposely showing us that there's things about himself that we'll never fully comprehend. He's too vast and great to fully understand. King David in Psalm 145, he says, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. That God is unsearchable. The temptation for us when it comes to this, is to change God to make him make more sense to us. And so it's why we say things like, I don't think God could possibly be like this. We feel the need to redefine him into something that we can comprehend. And so you see this tendency coming up again and again when we deal with these complexities about God. And so the question for us is, do we have the humility to accept our limitations as finite beings when it it comes to the complexities of God here. But the irony in all of this is that he actually does give us his name. Like he wants us to know things about him. He actually wants us to know him personally. And, And knowing God is actually the most important thing that we can ever do. Knowing God's name, it was a great help to Moses. He was able to go back to the Israelite leaders and say, I am has sent me to you. He was able to stand in front of Pharaoh and say, Yahweh declares. Knowing God's name was essential for Israel to be saved. And the same is true for us. But the only difference is that the God of the burning bush has given us a new name in which we're saved, and it's the name of Jesus. And so if we fast forward to the New Testament, we get Jesus having a discussion with the religious leaders of the day, and it's a bit of a hostile discussion. They're accusing him of having, having a demon in him. And we see Jesus respond to him. It's part of this discussion. It's going to come up on the screen. Verse 56, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not 50 years old, they said to him, and you've seen Abraham? 
Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. Did you catch that? Did you catch what Jesus said about himself? He didn't make a, a grammatical mistake. Before Abraham, I am. He's claiming this name for himself. And, so you, and you can tell the Pharisees knew exactly what he was doing because they picked up stones and they tried to kill him because they didn't believe what he was saying about himself. Jesus is saying that he is the eternal one. He is the God of the burning bush. That he's the God of Moses. He's the God of the Exodus. And not only was he present before Abraham, he's always been present. God himself has come to earth as a man to walk among us in the person of Jesus. Talk about things that are hard to comprehend. This is one of them. And he comes with the same reputation that he establishes throughout the Exodus. It's that he is a God that has come to save. The great I am has come to earth in the person of Jesus to save all humanity, to end our pain. He cares for us, to deliver us from the slavery of our sin, that his death on the cross would remove our sin, that he would give us his holiness, that we could survive an eternal encounter with God, that we wouldn't have to hide our face from him any longer. Jesus is the only name by which we can be saved. Peter says this in his sermon in Acts 4. He says, Then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. But catch this verse. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. There's no other name that can save us. Not your own name, not someone else's name, only Jesus. And so God establishes a name for himself through the events of this exodus that we're going to see, that he is the God of salvation. But his saving work didn't stop at the exodus. It was only a taste of his saving plan for humanity. God's great plan to save the whole world through the person of Jesus, that we can call on his name and find this God, the God of the burning bush, that we don't have to hide our face. It's crazy, isn't it? And so can I invite, I'm going to end here, but can I invite you to call on the name of Jesus? Find your hope in him. It's the only name that you can be saved. Live, live by his name. So good. All right, I'm going to pray. We'll finish up. Uh, Heavenly Father, Lord, as we consider the way that you declare yourself, at the burning bush, we're, we're humbled by it, Lord. Um, your greatness, your bigness, your complexity, Lord. Um, but you still make yourself known to us. Um, Lord, help us to know you better. Help us to find our hope in you. Help us to find our comfort in you, Lord. Um, please help us to comprehend more of you greatly. And Lord, we thank you for your saving plan in Jesus. We thank you that 
yeah, your saving nature did not stop at the exodus, but you've made a way for all of us, a name that we can hope in, Lord. And so, yeah, we thank you for Jesus and pray for, um, yeah, the people of Kos and anyone here yet to call on this name, Lord. Um, would you be making yourself known to them and helping them find um, their hope in you? We ask for these things in your son's name. Amen.